thing to say for Michaela, when I hear her sing, she just gives me chills a lot of times because I know she is just singing from her heart. So, Michaela, thank you uh, for singing for us this morning. I want to go ahead and invite you to open up your Bibles with me to uh, the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to begin in verse 37 this morning. We're in a, a section of Luke's Gospel that just seems to have these vignettes or these brief accounts of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. But if we would kind of step back and kind of take a look at them as a whole, it should seem fairly obvious to us that we're starting to see this pattern that appears to be manifesting itself in the life of the disciples. And before we kind of rush to a conclusion about them, we have to remember, for one thing, that we have the luxury of looking backwards in time where they did not. We have the advantage of having the revelation of God through his word in our hands and in our language and having these accounts written down for us, both for our encouragement and for our instruction. Someone has once always said that uh, hindsight's twenty twenty, meaning that if you look backwards at certain events, your knowledge should be more acute. Your knowledge should be greater than when you're actually living in the moment. But it should be painfully obvious to us that we've been going through this chapter that there seems to be this this ebb and flow of the understanding uh, and the faithfulness of the disciples as to who it is that was actually walking around Galilee with them. But not only should we not be so quick to bring judgment upon these disciples, wavering faithfulness because we have the ability to look backwards through God's word, but in all honesty, our own practical experience seems to be that of the same pattern. Our walk with Christ just seems to be these series of new beginnings. Our motivations and our obedience to Christ seem to ebb and flow in the same way. Our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. We too seem to have these mountaintop experiences with the Lord, and then we have to come down and deal with reality. We, we love Sundays. Sundays are great, but Monday's coming, right? And so we look back at these disciples and their seemingly endless line of failures, and I just want to caution you not to be too quick to judge them. Because if we're really honest about them and ourselves, we can all relate to these disciples in one form or another. As Christians, we've all experienced times where God's glory was not honored. All of us have experienced times where God's strength was not depended upon. All of us have had times where God's wisdom was not sought. And just like we're going to see in the text this morning, all of us have experienced times where God's faithfulness was not relied upon. So let's not be too quick to stand in judgment of these men, but let's learn from them. Let's look at this as we would a mirror and look at it in terms of how it reflects our own wayward hearts towards God. But also, and more importantly, as we look at these accounts, let us take note of the patience of our Lord. Let us marvel upon his power, and let us note his compassion upon mankind. So I want to begin by reading our text this morning, starting in verse 37 of Luke chapter 9, and see what God has to say to us through his word. And I'll be honest with you, we didn't, I didn't make it all the way through. We're going to pick up some of it for next week. But if you're able to stand with me in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 37, I want to read from God's Word. 
Uh, we, have the, we use the New American Standard Version here, so if yours is a little different, that's okay. But there's a, a pew Bible there available for you if you'd like to read from that version. So Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 37, God's holy word says this. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met them, met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mulling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your greatness, Lord. Help us to uh, have our minds set on learning more about you so that we can worship you in spirit and truth this morning. With our Bibles open upon our laps, let us look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Take what we hear today and apply it to our lives. We just pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in the year 1516, the Roman Catholic Church sent a man by the name of Johann Tetzel to Germany to try to raise funds for the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, which had already begun construction some 10 years earlier. And to say that St. Peter's is a massive, ornate structure is just an understatement. It's considered one of the largest churches in the entire world, and it had one of its designers and architects was the famous artist Michelangelo. But as Tetzel was sent to Germany, his plan was to raise money for the building by selling indulgences. The basic gist of buying an indulgence would allow you or a loved one to kind of absolve some of your punishment for sin after you died and were hanging out in purgatory. So basically, if you were forgiven by God, as the Catholic Church would declare you to be so, you would die, and then your soul would hang out in this place called purgatory for a while. Now, this is not a biblical concept, just so you know. And there, you would face punishment from God for your remaining sins. Now, if you would give the church some money, they would intercede before God for you or your loved one and tell you that those sins are now forgiven or even that the punishment of your loved one would be shortened. I mean, who in here would not want to help sweet, sweet Grammy get out of purgatory a little faster, right? But Tetzel was attributed with the saying that goes like this. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory into heaven springs, right? But the Catholic Church, they outlawed this practice some 50 years later in 1567, but as recently as in the last 10 years, they have brought this practice back. So I guess budgets are running a little tight. But also in December of that very same year, 1516, when Tetzel was sent to Germany to raise funds, the Catholic Church also commissioned an artist by the name 
of Raphael to paint a biblical scene which was to be the altarpiece for the Narbonne Cathedral that is located in southern France. I have the picture of the painting out there in the foyer if you want to take a look at it after service. But this painting took him three years to paint. It's 13 feet tall and 19 feet wide, and its title is called The Transfiguration. Some have said that he lived more as a prince than he did a painter because of the income that he received from the Catholic Church. But he left behind for us a scene that combines verses 28 through 36 of our text in chapter 9 at the top of the painting, and then at the bottom is verses 37 through 42, which remains at the bottom, which is what we're studying today. At the top of this painting, Jesus is bathed in a brilliant white light. You have Moses and Elijah at his side. Peter, James, and John sit on the mountain. They're looking heavenward, yet they're shading their eyes as they behold the glory of Christ. And yet, in that same painting, Raphael painted a dark scene at the bottom in which the nine other disciples are down there on the plain, unsuccessfully trying to cast out a demon out of a boy with a distraught father, and the crowd is just looking upon them with this bewilderment. It's a contrast of the light above and the darkness below. It's a distinguishing of the glories and his glorious majesty above, while Satan rules in cruel, ugly darkness below. And yet, there is some similarities between the two contrasts, uh, but the Father in heaven is above affirming the love for his Son, his only begotten Son, by pointing to Jesus and ascribing honor to him by declaring him his chosen one. And yet, in the plain below, we have another father interceding desperately on behalf of his only son by bringing him to Jesus and ascribing Jesus' honor by addressing him as teacher, or as Matthew records for us in this account, he addresses him as Lord. But just like that stark contrast that we have in that painting, we've seen this pattern of highs and lows and what seems to be that we've been tracking out over the last couple of weeks. We've seen understanding and misunderstanding. We've seen progression and we've seen regression. We see enlightenment and then we see blindness. But how many of us in this room would describe our Christian walk in the same manner? How many of us in this, in this room feel like we take a step forward and two steps back in terms of our Christian life. We have these great spiritual highs. We may go to these conferences or these women's retreats, men's retreats, what have you, and we have this great time of intimacy and communion with God. And we, then we come home and we feel like we couldn't be farther away from Him. Life happens. But if we were to look at our lives and compare that to the biblical record, what we would find is that we are actually in good company. We can think about Elijah as a prime example of that when having such a great victory over the prophets of Baal. And we find him then in 1 Kings 19. He's fleeing into the wilderness. He's discouraged. He's disheartened. And he's disillusioned. But surely we could probably rightly conclude that this is where Peter, John, and James must have been after they just acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ of God, from verse 20. And then... They were told they weren't allowed to tell anyone. And then on top of that, that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem, and he was going to be killed. And But not only that, they were going to have to deny themselves. They were going to have to take up their cross daily, and they were going to have to follow him all the way back in verse 23. 
they probably felt discouraged. They probably felt a little disheartened, and they probably felt a little disillusioned. But Jesus didn't leave them there. Instead, he takes them up on top of the mountain, and he reveals himself to them in this bright, radiant, majestic glory. He gives them a glimpse of his eternal splendor with which he had from, with the Father from since the foundation of the world. He gives them a visible manifestation of God's invisible glory. Everything about him shines brilliant, and it becomes so radiant white that it's like a flash of lightning before their eyes. And his face, it looks like that of the sun, so much that you can't even gaze upon him without squinting and covering your eyes. Philip Graham Ryken said, It was as if these three disciples were caught in the high beams of heaven. But they were just surrounded by the, the purest and the brightest and the most glorious and the most illuminating light that they had ever laid eyes upon. But not only did, did they see Jesus there, not only is he the only one they see, they see Moses and Elijah at his side. Moses, who was the hero of the Exodus and led Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt, and received the Ten Commandments, represented the law. And then Elijah, who shut up rain from heaven, he raised the dead, he prayed down fire from heaven, and was taken up in a chariot of fire, who represented the prophets. And together, those two represented the entirety of the Old Testament, because that's what the people called the Old Testament back then, the law and the prophets. It was a term given to the two great divisions of the Old Testament, because there wasn't a New Testament yet, so they didn't call it the Old Testament. But together, Moses and Elijah represented the culmination of everything that was promised in the Old Testament, thus standing with Jesus, and they were confirming and testifying that he was indeed the promised Messiah. It was as if the sight of these two standing there beside Jesus would have signified to an unbelieving Israel that Jesus was actually the Messiah foretold and promised by God through his word. But think about this. Think about this as well. When those disciples, they look up and they see Moses and Elijah standing there. Think about what that confirmed for them about the future. Think about the great hope and the, uh, uh, that they should have had in receiving a resurrected body. Think about the overwhelming sense of anticipation that they would have had for a future life in the presence of God. Moses and Elijah, they hadn't walked around the earth for a thousand years. But suddenly, there they are. They've been gone, but now here they are. They're standing and talking with Jesus about his departure, and they both appear to be alive and well. But think about the great stirrings within their heart, the great wonder and the amazement and the confidence that they would have had in a future life with Jesus Christ when they saw those two. But what they saw is what we long for. What they got a glimpse of is what we hope for, for those of us who trust in Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20 and 21 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with the body of his glory. Just like those three disciples who saw Moses and Elijah alive and well, surrounded by the glory of the light of Christ, 
Someday, we too will be more alive than we have ever been. We'll be healed of any and all pains and diseases. We'll be freed from any worry, anxiety, or fear. We'll never struggle with sin or temptation again. But more importantly, just like Moses and Elijah, we will be with Christ for all of eternity. The absolute epitome and the source of all happiness and contentment and joy and delight. And we will never, ever seek for anything else to bring us satisfaction because Jesus Christ holds the unfathomable riches of eternal joy. That's our great hope. But just as Raphael, he painted this stark contrast for us, Luke's inspired writing draws the same stark contrast for us as well. In verse 37 of our text, it says, On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Now, we can only imagine what their conversations must have been as they came down that mountainside on the next day. Their minds just should have been just amazed with all they had taken in on top of that mountain. But in Mark chapter 9, once again, they are told not to tell anyone about what they have seen. They're told to keep quiet until after he has risen from the dead. And so they're still a little confused about this. They're still not quite so sure what to make about this statement. But to be sure, what Peter saw that night impacted him forever. It was so vivid in his mind. In fact, he wrote about it in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 18. He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on that holy mountain. It impacted him forever. But as they come down on that, from that mountain on the next day after the transfiguration, you got Jesus, Peter, James, and John, the four of them coming down are met by a large crowd. And as Mark 9 gives us a little bit more detail, Mark has the fullest account of this, so we'll refer to that a little bit, but if you want to look later, it's in Mark chapter 9. But it tells us that the crowd actually runs up to meet them because they're eager to see him. But there's a little bit of a ruckus going on down there when they get to the bottom because this tells us the scribes are actually arguing with the disciples. If you'll remember from several weeks back, the scribes, they were the lawgivers of Judaism, or the lawyers, rather, of Judaism. Their job was the ones to interpret the law, and they wrote commentaries on it, and so forth and so on. Again, Mark 9 gives us this information about the scribes, but Luke omits it because they're not really the focus of the account. And so there's this bit of turmoil going on when Jesus descends the mountain. It's kind of reminiscent when in Exodus 32, just like Moses descended Mount Sinai after receiving the law, there was chaos and deceival. You remember the golden calf, right? All sorts of crazy things going on. But you've got people running around and surrounding Jesus. You've got these scribes arguing with the disciples. But then it gets worse. Verse 38 in your text, it says, A man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. 
And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. So here's this desperate scene that unfolds right here in front of us. A man with his only son, he casts himself on Jesus and implores him to help. Matthew tells us that this father is just exasperated and he falls on his knees before Jesus. And they call, and, and actually in the other text, you know, at one point he calls him teacher and the other one calls him Lord. But he's in this mass of a crowd and he cries out to Jesus, begging him to look after the boy. And Luke adds that it is only his boy, much like the widow of Nain's only son or Jairus's daughter, his only daughter from back, back in chapter 8. So Luke adds this information for us that this is a desperate situation. This is all this dad has. And if we put all the accounts together about what's going on with this son, it is pretty bleak to say the least. If we add them all together, we know that the boy screams. He gets thrown to the ground in convulsions. He foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth. He becomes stiff as a board. And on some occasions, he's ran into the fire or into the water, and he's covered with scars from all the wounds from which he's tried to hurt himself. He can't speak, and he can't hear. And when the Spirit does leave him, it mauls him as it leaves. Or literally, what that means is that it crushes the boy. So this is a sad pathetic, helpless situation for the father. It's almost like the, the man that, the, that met him in, at Gerasenes, right? The man that lived among the tombs. This dad has lived with this, as it says in Mark, since this, his son was a child. Now, we don't know how long that is, because the gist of it is that the father has been taking care of this son for a very, very long time. It's been relentless. It's nonstop, awful attack on this kid. But then in verse 40, is probably almost what shocks us more than the condition of the boy. Verse 40 is what we just can't seem to reconcile in our minds. It says in verse 40, I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. Now, the reason that shocks us is because of what we had studied about the disciples at the beginning of chapter 9, when Jesus gave them that power and the authority over all demons and to heal diseases, right? He gave them not only the right to do it, but he gave them the strength. This is what we talked about, about why do police officers carry guns, right? They've got the authority granted to them from whatever agency they work for, but they need to be able to enforce it. They've got to have the power to do uh, with someone whenever they say, you know what, I'm going to do what I want, where I want, when I want, and with who I want, and the police has to have the utmost power to tell them, oh, no, you're not, right? The disciples had just concluded their first preaching tour, and they'd done all these things. They healed diseases. They cast out demons. And so if this boy was merely an epileptic, as some commentators tried to argue, the disciples should have been able to bring it out by mere healing. But the description that we have of the boy and the fact that upon Jesus' arrival that the boy gets thrown to the ground and that Jesus indeed rebukes the unclean spirit, this we know that this is not a case of epilepsy, but this is demon possession. But the question remains why the disciples couldn't handle it. What couldn't the disciples cast out in this particular demon? Why couldn't they do it? Why was this situation different from any other? 
Well, let's read, in on our, or read on in our text to try to find out in verse 41. It says, And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Now, first of all, we got three possibilities as to who Jesus is talking to, right? Who is this unbelieving and perverted generation? Well, number one, he could have been talking to the father who brought the boy forth, right? In Mark chapter 9, verse 22, he records for us that the father brings the boy before Jesus and says to him, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus replies back to this dad, he says, if you can, almost as if he's kind of shocked and taken back that the dad would say such a thing to him. But then he tells the father, all things are possible to him who believes. And the father replies back, he says, I do believe, help my unbelief, right? Almost as, as if he's admitting, you know, I've got faith, but it's kind of mixed with doubt. I wonder how many of us in this room feel like that this morning. I wonder how many of us say that we believe in Jesus, but we doubt he cares about us. I, I believe in Jesus, but I don't think he has time for me personally. But God does care for us. God cares for us in such an unfathomable and deep way that we'll never, ever be able to measure the length and the height and the width and the depth of the love that he has for us in Jesus Christ. Why would God take the time to number the hairs of your head if he didn't care for you, like Matthew 10.30 says to us? Why would God bother himself and take the time to know you're lying down, and to know you're rising up, and to know the very words that are on your tongue before you even speak them, if he didn't care for you intimately, as Psalm 139 tells us. Why would God take the time to uh, redeem you, and suffer and die for you, and purchase you with his own blood, the price of his son's blood, if he didn't care for you? The Father loves you with an everlasting love, an untainted love, an undefiled love, and he wants you to cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. So number one, Jesus could have been talking to the Father. The second group he could have been referring to is his nine disciples who were left, left at the base of the mountain with the crowd. Now, it was obvious that there is something amiss in trying to cast out the demon out of this boy. So he could have been calling out the nine who failed in this desperate situation. And then the third group that he could have been addressing would have been encompassing the entire nation of Israel, the, the people there as a whole. Moses addressed their fathers in the same way in Deuteronomy 32.5 when he called unbelieving Israel a, quote, perverse and crooked generation. The people were deficient in their knowledge and trust of the living God, and they continually had wayward hearts. And this was certainly true of the gener generation that Jesus is addressing here. The scribes who were present there on the bottom of that mountain, they surely were not trusting in God's righteousness, but were trusting in their own good works and their keeping of the law to have a right standing before God. But who is he talking to? Now, many commentators disagree as to who he is addressing, but I think probably the least likely candidate is the father. Because as we read the father's own statement from Mark, he seems to acknowledge that he has an imperfect faith. 
It's a brutal honesty, and he cries out to Jesus with help in his unbelief. But I think to a greater and a lesser extent, I think Jesus is both addressing his disciples that are there and the crowd. Because if we look at the corollary accounts in Matthew and Mark, they come to Jesus privately and they ask him why they could not drive out the demon. And in Matthew 17, 20, Jesus tells them it's because of the littleness of your faith. Now, what does that mean? What, what is he talking about? Because the, the disciples, they surely didn't lack the experience to cast out the demons. It wasn't for a lack of effort. They weren't using the wrong techniques. They didn't lack the authority. Jesus never told them to stop and, you know, hey, your authority's rescinded now, so don't do that anymore. But they lacked faith or belief. And faith isn't what our modern-day culture defines as a blind acceptance or a leap of faith, as the phrase goes, because the Bible never talks about faith in such a way. It isn't a vague, ambiguous term that's just irrational with no grounds or no basis. But faith in the Scripture is defined as something that is substantive, it is rational, and it is grounded in truth. The faith that the world tries to tell us that we live by is actually the faith that they live by. When they get on an airplane, by faith, they're actually trusting that there is a sober and sane pilot and co-pilot behind that door, and they never get to see them. When, by faith, they continually cross bridges that they trust were constructed with the right materials, and all the nuts and bolts are in place, all the while never seeing the construction workers do that. By faith, they go to fast food restaurants and they eat the food that's put before them, never seeing the chef. So they have a faith that's a leap of faith to say. But biblical faith is the complete opposite. Biblical faith is not grounded upon experience, but biblical faith is grounded in what has been promised. Biblical faith is believing in a, a God who is, uh, is what he has said is true and what he is, has done because the Bible declares it to be true. Biblical faith is rooted in the conviction that what God has said will absolutely come to pass because we have the testimony of scriptures and it has not failed in one instance. When God declared that the plagues would come upon Egypt, if Pharaoh did not let his people go, they came to pass. When God pronounced judgment upon Israel and sent the Assyrians to destroy them in 722 B.C. and the Babylonians in 586 B.C. to execute his judgment, it came to pass. When God declared that the Son of God would be born of a virgin, suffer and die for the sins of the world, it came to pass. Our faith is ground in the absolute confidence and the absolute assurance that the things that we hope for are going to come true. The things that we hope for, we have an inheritance waiting for us. We're waiting to be caught up in the air with him. We are waiting to be receiving our glorious resurrected body. And we are, have the confidence and the hope that we will have an everlasting life with Christ will actually come to pass as he has said. Our faith isn't rooted in some mystical experience or some blind acceptance to some irrational propositions, but our faith is rooted and anchored in the character and nature of God as he has revealed himself to us in Scripture. As a former atheist, I can tell you it takes a lot more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian. 
Now, unfortunately, we're running out of time, and I have a lot more to share with you next week about faith, and we're going to have to pick up there next week. But how is your faith this morning? Is your faith rooted and grounded in what God has said is actually true? Are you standing on the promises of God, or are you continually depending upon your strength? God has bound himself to his promises, and he is eager and ready to exceed the prayers of his people. If you are like this father this morning, you're desperate. You're feeling helpless. Look to Jesus. Cry out to him to help your unbelief. Keep your eyes open upon him because he loves you and he is eager to give you good gifts to you, his children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would strengthen our faith this morning. We just pray that we might honor you with our lives as we go through the week because when we leave here, The world is ready to assault us, to take our eyes off of you, to entice us, to draw us away from you. So God, we just pray that we might be steadfast, immovable, dedicated, and just abounding in good works for you this week. Help us to be eagerly awaiting your return. Help us to look forward to the great glorious day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, strengthen our hearts this week as we go forth from here. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.